So tonight I'm going to try to I'm going to try to get through two chapters in Esther. So it might be a little bit more lecturing and a lot more reading than discussion, but we are going to take some time to give you time to ask questions and to to see what's going on. Um, it's been two weeks, so let me give you just a quick refresher, and we'll we'll uh, hit the ground running. Sound good? All right. So through the book, through the book of Esther. We've had hints, really, of God's hand working through all these events, right? I mean, we know that he is working because we know the story. We know how the story ends. We know what's going to happen and how God's going to work it all out. But if you didn't know the story and you were just reading it from front to, front to back, as we've come up to chapter 5, you'd be asking, you know, what is going on here? You know, why is this happening? How is God letting this happen? Uh, but we do know the story, and we do know how it's going to end, and we know God is at work, even through the things that are not good. God is at work. Esther and Mordecai are Jewish exiles in Persia who are trying to live as Persians, remember? And Esther becomes queen by a providential act of God through this horrendous thing that happens, this incredible circumstances. But Mordecai tells her not to reveal her Jewish heritage. And we're assuming Mordecai hadn't revealed his as well. And then right in the middle of the story, as we see how Esther becomes queen and how things are moving in uh, all of this, out of nowhere and for seemingly no reason, we are shown this scene where Mordecai exposes a plot against the king. Dave, are you back there? Can you turn that TV on for me? It says, in those days, as this is something we've already read, chapter 2, it says, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, on the king Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Y'all remember that? We went through that, and then that was it. Just this one little scene that tells us, hey, Mordecai revealed, uh, discovered a plot, revealed what was going on, and then we moved on. The next, uh, the next verses, chapter 3, said that Haman was raised to a, a height of power and glory. Now, the reader, we talked about this when we read chapter 2, the reader that knows Persian culture would expect that Mordecai would receive a reward for his loyalty. I mean, that is what happened. That was very common in the Persian kingdom. But in the text, his good deed is seemingly forgotten. Nothing else is said about it. And by God's providence, instead of Mordecai being rewarded, Haman, the Agagite, we're introduced to him, the enemy in the story in chapter 3. He's an enemy of the Jewish people, and he's raised to the highest position in the Persian empire. Uh, the king raises him up above all the other servants, and the king commands all the servants to bow down to him. Well, that is the last straw for Mordecai. He refuses and, uh, to bow down to Haman, and that's where Mordecai reveals that he won't bow down to this Agagite, this uh, descendant of the Amalekite king, because he is Jewish. And he reveals that he's Jewish and he can't bow down to this guy. We talked about the history behind that with Agag and the Jews during Saul and how that would be remembered and God told them never to forget. And so that is why he wouldn't bow down to Haman. Now this one act of defiance sets Haman off. And he, he's just, 
he's just angry and he, he convinces the king to send a decree that, remember what he said, a certain people who do not obey the king's law should be wiped out. They're all going to be killed. And the last time that we met and talked about Esther, we saw this interchange between Esther and Mordecai through servants. And he tells her that she's got to go into the king and try to save the people from this decree. And at first, she explains why she can't do that. To go into the king, of course, without a, a summon, without the king inviting you into his presence, that's a death sentence in Persia. But Mordecai tells her that if she refuses to do so, he said deliverance for the Jews would come from another place, but she will still perish. Her and her father's house, he says. So you remember what Esther did? The last thing we read when we were in the book of Esther a couple weeks ago? She called for a three-day fast. She said, let all the people fast for three days, and me and my, my women servants will fast for three days. And she commits to appearing before the king. She said, if I perish, I perish. Now, as we begin chapter 5, what we're going to see is God's providence moving so incredibly in all of the events that have happened before and all of the events that we're going to see here to keep his covenant word with his people. Even though we can't, if you're reading this, you're thinking all hope's lost if you don't know the story, but God is moving to keep his word. First, God's providence protects Esther. At the beginning of chapter five, it says this. Remember three day fast. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. In the last chapter, we saw Esther make a choice. She's no longer going to be passive in this story. She's no longer going to be hiding her Jewish identity. She's no longer going to be taking a back seat and just letting events play out. She chooses, she chose in the end of chapter 4, she chose to be the instrument of God that he has called her to be. And you see her move from this person who is just hiding in Persia to now this bold instrument of the Lord that's going to be used uh, greatly by him. And she, in, in putting on the royal robes and all, it's like she's assuming the dignity and the power of the position where the Lord has placed her. And when it says she stood in the inner court, we really should understand that, that this, her doing this, that where it says, put on a robe, and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. We read over that just like it's the setting. That is a monumental act of courage. Like when the king's court opens the doors and they see her standing there, they would have been shocked. I mean, this was breaking the law of Persia. And I'm sure the first thought on everybody in the court's mind was, Oh, this lady's going to die. We're going to have to go find another king, a queen. But we know Esther's not alone. God is working and moving in all of these things. So when the text says, and she found favor in the king's sight, we all know why. Why? Because God is with her. God has a plan. He's called Esther for this moment. And so the king grants her entrance. Holds out the scepter so she's not going to die. And then in verse 3, he says, The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half the kingdom. Half the kingdom 
was kind of an idiom that was commonly used, meaning the king would grant her whatever she requested. Uh, Herod said the same thing to his daughter uh, before they beheaded John the Baptist. But what you, what you see really is immediately the king knows that Esther has a request. She didn't just show up here to show up here. She wants something. She wants to ask him something. So before she says anything, he says, okay, what is your request? And he knows that she's not going to show up and risk her life if she didn't have something important to tell her. So the king asks, and there's this dramatic pause. We know what she's going to ask, right? We know what she wants. I want you to save my people. I want you to save the Jewish people. That's what we expect her next words to be. I want you to save the Jews, but that isn't what she says. In verse 4, she says, And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Esther doesn't make her request yet. She doesn't make it in the court. I don't know, maybe there's people standing around, guards standing around, who knows? We don't really know why she requests a banquet. I mean, I'm kind of inclined to think that, you know, she knew that honor and pride and parties are the lifeblood of these guys, you know, and so let, let, let's do that. But why does she invite Haman? Well, she wants to trick him, for sure. Does she know that Haman's responsible for all this? Yeah, she does. Mordecai told her, remember? And probably, I mean, we don't know, but probably knows that Haman has the ear of the king. He's like second in command. Uh, he's just, he's got incredible influence over the king. We don't really know why Esther decides on using, she's going to use two banquets, this one and another one. But what we do know is that she has thought this through. She didn't just walk in there and say, nah, it might be a good idea for us to have a banquet. It seems that she has been thinking this through, praying this through. She's planned it. She's not passive in this anymore. And then in verse 6, it says, And as they were drinking, they're at this banquet, they were drinking wine after the feast. The king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, and here we are again, she's going to tell him. She's going to say, you've got to save my people. It's a dramatic moment. Esther's about to put her life on the line, reveal she's a Jewish person and that she is queen and that she is wanting him to save her people. But that's not what she says again. Verse 8 says, if I have found favor in your sight of the king, and it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why does Esther make the king wait? Why have a banquet so I can tell you that I want to have another banquet in order to tell you what I wanted to tell you before the first banquet? It's a girl thing. It's a, oh my gosh. He said it's a girl thing. Huh? She was just trying to find favor, so she just Trying to find favor with him, so he's whining and dining it. The king had not yet been reminded that he was beholden to Mordecai. 
That's, that's, that, that's the ultimate reason. So he said the king had not yet been reminded by God that he, was, he owed Mordecai. Uh, but do you think Esther knew that? Like Esther knew tonight, God's going to remind him that he forgot to reward Mordecai. Maybe so. Maybe God revealed to her how it would work out. It's very possible. We, we, we don't really know. But boy, the delay sure adds suspense to the story, doesn't it? There have been many explanations that have offered, you know, maybe it was Persian protocol. Maybe she just felt like it wasn't the right time. Maybe God had told her uh, during her three-day fast and prayer. We, we know the reason, but we don't know her reason. There is a reason God is moving behind these scenes. And what we learn is time is needed for God to work out a few more details in his purpose for the the people to be saved and for God's covenant to be fulfilled. So now the writer of Esther changes the scene and it shifts to Haman. And it says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So Haman is so happy. He's just as happy as he can be. He's thrilled to be honored by the king and now be invited at this private banquet that the king is throwing, the queen is throwing the king. But his joy is just short-lived because who does he see in the courtyard again? Sees Mordecai. Mordecai still won't stand for him, won't honor him. He doesn't rise when Haman walks by, and we're told here in the text, he's not scared of Haman. He doesn't tremble before him at all. Once again, this fills Haman with rage. But rather than lash out again, Haman goes home. And look what he does at home. This is very instructive about who this man is. Is. It says, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted, make sure you notice they're called his friends here. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited to buy her together with the king. What is he doing? He's bragging. The, the pride of this man has just come, it's just flowing out. He gets home to his friends and his family and he just starts boasting wildly about his riches, about his blessings, about his power, about his status. He boasts that he's been honored at the highest level by the king of Persia, even boasting that Queen Esther allowed him to come to her banquet and is doing so again tomorrow. I mean, if ever there was a picture of pride going before the fall, man, this guy is it. He is eat up with it. Eat up with it. And then you really see his heart. You see the wickedness of his heart. Pride is easy to see in other folks. Not always easy to see in ourselves. But here we see his heart. So what really matters to him? His appearance. Yeah, his appearance, self, his, his prestige, his power, his wealth, his respect, recognition. All those are his idols. But despite all of his boasting, despite all that he has accomplished, I guess you could say, he can't be happy. Why? 
Verse 13, he says, yet all this is worth nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai's dishonor of him is so offensive that it just overshadows all of Haman's proud boast. How does Haman's pride feed into this statement? I mean, when he starts boasting about all this stuff, I mean, that's easy. You can see pride just oozing out of him. But to have all of that stuff, you know, let's say that it is just grand and great and wonderful blessings and, all, you know, honor and all of that. To have all of that stuff overshadowed by one man who will not bow to him. What does that tell you about him? Huh? He's very shallow. Very shallow. That he could look at all the things and boast in all the things and say how great he is. But this one guy, this one guy just... I cannot be happy in all of the things that I, my soul needs the most, all this stuff he loves, because this one guy sitting at the gate, as long as I see him there, I'm reminded that I'm not all that because he will not fear me. He will not bow before me. Pride moved easily in this man to self-pity and then self-pity moved to vengeance. He is, here, here's a good opportunity for Haman's family and his friends to step in and say, man, look, you got to let that go. What's wrong with you? I mean, it's one guy. And I mean, honestly, Haman, I, I was thinking you wasn't all that anyway. So it's probably more than one guy. You know, his family could step in and say, listen, what you're doing's wrong. What you're saying's wrong. Your heart's wrong. But Haman's family doesn't help him at all. Instead, they feed into his pride. Look what they say in verse 14. It says, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends, notice they're called his friends again, said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Get the one guy out of your way that's causing you all this turmoil, and then just go joyfully to the feast and enjoy all your accomplishments. And no surprise, it pleased Haman, and he had the gallows built. They suggest building a gallows. It could be translated as a stake. So some of your translations may say build a stake. The Persians often impaled people. But they request it be made 50 cubits high. How tall is that? You know? 23 meters. 23 me- <laughs> Don't nobody use meters, Susan. We're in America. 75 feet, 75 feet or so. That's huge by anybody's standards. And the idea is that we understand, the family's saying, we understand that you can enjoy all of these great accomplishments, all of these blessings, all of these honors and things that you... So you just make an example out of this guy. You know, you build this huge gallows... So everyone in Susa will see what happens when you defy the great Haman. And of course, Haman thinks, that's a great idea. I think that's exactly what I'm going to do. His pride went from pride to self-pity. Then it turned to vengeance. I'm going to get him for what he did. He wanted everybody to see his victory over Mordecai. So that... 
Maybe she asked if she th- said he must have been jealous of Mordecai. He might have been. He gave him far too much importance. He did. Gave him far too much importance. I think, and this is just a guess, a suggestion. I think that um, the man is just so eat up with self and pride that for anybody, especially uh, a Jew, Mordecai, who he knows is a Jew and their history with you know, his people and the Jewish people, anybody to just re- flat out reject honoring him in a subservient way just ate him to the bone because he's just so prideful. Mordecai has definitely taken up a lot of space in Haman's mind. He's very insecure. Yeah, boastful people often are very insecure. He can't just rest in what, he, what he's been given and where he's at. He's got to have more. And he's got to have everybody recognize that he's the greatest, the best. So that night, Haman had the gallows made with the intent of going into the king the next morning and asking for Mordecai to be hanged on the gallows. Now, this is the most important part of these two chapters. I think it's the most important part of the whole book. Scene shifts again to the king's bedchamber. And it says this. On that night, what, what's Mordecai do, I mean, what's Haman doing right now? He's having gallows built right now. All night long, he's going to be having gallows built. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. I want you to really see this. Here is, this is the pivotal moment in the book of Esther, right here. The tide turns here, not because Mordecai or, uh, or Esther's actions or what they do. The pivotal event in the book that begins the reversal of Mordecai and Haman is a seemingly chance event happening at just exactly the right time. It just so happened that on this night, the king couldn't sleep. And it just so happened that he wanted the Chronicles brought to him, probably to put him to sleep. And it just so happened that the place where the Chronicles were read included the time Mordecai exposed the plot against him. And it just so happened that at the time, Mordecai's good deed went unrewarded and it was forgotten. Now, I I don't know why Esther decided to wait and have another banquet the next day. uh, But I know God had her wait. So that he could turn the heart of the king through these random, they're not random, but these random events. Mordecai is now on the king's mind. Mordecai is now in the king's mind a loyal servant who went without reward for protecting the king's life. How could this have happened? Persian kings were noted for their great rewards of loyalty. This moment right here shows us that no one in this story, not Mordecai, not Esther, not Ahasuerus, not Haman, not even the most powerful people in the world are in control. 
God is working all things to save his people and fulfill his word, and he's doing it at exactly the right time, in exactly the right way, and he is doing it without fail. So it just so happened that Esther decided to wait. It just so happened that all this happened in the night, and it just so happened, uh, I, I read one person who said that it wasn't the guy reading the Chronicle that said no reward had been done for him. It was a king's young servant who was in the room who just happened to remember that nothing had been done for him. I don't know if that's true, but boy, that sure feeds into the story. All of this just so happened, just so happened because God was working behind all this. Questions, comments? Okay. Verse four and five. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged. Ha, 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 okay. On the gallows that he had prepared for him. He'd been up all night building gallows. And now he comes prancing into the palace. I'm going to get the king to kill Mordecai. And the king's young men told, told him Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. Obviously, it's, you know, it's now early morning. King's being read these chronicles. Haman's been up all night making the gallows. Comes into the court on his way to ask for Mordecai's death. And it just so happened when the king says, okay, we're going to do something about this. Tell me who's out in the court. I'm going to go send them who just happened to be walking into the court at that time. Haman. Come on now, that's pretty amazing. All right, I want to read two slides to you and then go back. It says, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden and on whose head the, uh, a royal crown is set. And let the, the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead them on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That's what Haman uh, uh, suggests. Even in this, this little conversation, God's providential hand is all over it. What would have happened if Haman walked in the door and the king said, hey, listen, uh, Mordecai wasn't rewarded way back then. I want to reward him. What do you think I should do? You think Haman's answer would have been the same? <laughs> no, probably not. No, he, he wouldn't have been the same at all. Haman would have been prepared then. He would have known what was going on. His answer would have been, you know, his hand would have been tipped. He would have been tipped off that Mordecai was on the king's mind. But the king just so happened to say the man the king wants to honor rather than Mordecai, the Jew, who the king wants to honor. And being the pride-filled megalomaniac that Haman is, he thinks he's talking about him. You know, who else could it be? Who would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman reveals what he wants. You see it? Haman thinks this guy's talking about me. He's wanting to honor me. What do I want more than anything else in the world? And he reveals to us his aspirations, his heart. 
A man permitted to wear the king's robe would be vested with dignity and prestige before all the people. Haman wants to be the king. He wants to share in the glory of the king. He wants all the people to know the king honors him above all other people. He wants to be invested with the king's power. So he suggests what he himself wants. And we can only imagine Haman's face when the king says, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. I love this last line. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. <laughs> do it just like you said and go do it to Mordecai. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Not only can Haman not ask now that Mordecai be killed on the gallows, but he's going to have to honor this man who had dishonored him in his mind in front of the whole court of the king, in front of all the servants of the king, in front of the king's gate. Now here's a question. The king knows Mordecai is a Jew. He says so, Mordecai the Jew. And he wants to honor and reward him. Why wouldn't the king tell Haman at this point, hey, that whole thing about killing all the Jews, we're not going to do that. He can't undo his law, but... Yeah. You remember how he came to the king and asked for their death? There's a certain people that don't obey your laws. And the king never asks who. He doesn't know. I don't think he knows. He, he will find out. And you're right. He can't undo the decree. But at this point, I don't think that he knows that this decree that sent out this certain people is the Jewish nation. So at this point, we know the story, so it's just commonplace to us. But at this point, the first Jewish readers of this story would be laughing their heads off. God has made a mockery of his enemies through a bunch of events that just so happened to take place and he has made Haman the utter fool that he truly is by him prancing in to have Mordecai's head only to find out that he's going to be the one leading Mordecai around on a horse. Haman went and got a robe from the king's servants. Haman went to the stable and got one of the king's horses. And he walked up to Mordecai in the courtyard, looked Mordecai in the face, and says, the king wants to honor you, so get on the horse. I'm going to lead you around town. And had to walk around town going, thus shall it be done to the man the king decides to honor. To have what Haman wanted most given to Mordecai the Jew, it had to be the most crushing, humiliation, humiliating thing that he had ever experienced. And I find that delicious. <laughs> it's just wonderful. But what's striking to me is that we're not, we're not told that Mordecai said anything. It just happened. What do you think Mordecai said when Haman walked up and said, the king wants to honor you, get on a horse, I'm going to lead you around the city? You're crazy. <laughs> You're crazy? I don't know. 
What would you have said? What would you have said? Well, let me just get right on up there then. Uh, Haman, could you go a little faster, please? I'm getting the flies. Go a little faster. We're not told that he said anything. Uh, no response at all. I wonder how he took it. I don't know. But Haman is humiliated. And he goes home in a fit. And it's here that he finally realizes his fate is sealed. So in the last couple of verses, it says, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. I want you to make sure you see this. He's mourning. His head's covered. He's so embarrassed. So humid. Nothing could be worse for him. Now the whole court knows this man who refused to bow to me was now honored by the king in the most highest way possible. And Haman himself had to do the honors. So you see the roles reverse. <clears throat> Mordecai, Mordecai was supposed to, by the king's order, bow to Haman. But now by the king's order, you see Mordecai lifted up and Haman bringing him around the city. Um, humiliating. He is distraught. But the text says when it was over, Mordecai returned to the city gate. Nothing really changed for him. You know, he's back at his position, back at the city gate. Presumably, he's still back in sackcloth and ashes, mourning. Nothing's changed for him. The honor of riding the horse was what Haman wanted, but it wasn't a real big deal to Mordecai. Mordecai wanted his people saved. He wanted God to intervene. So Mordecai returns to his position. And nothing's changed. The Jews still have a death sentence coming. Haman is still the king's, in the king's ear. Haman is still the second in command. But for Haman, everything has changed. So Haman goes back home to his wife and his friends. And I, I don't know if the author of Esther has a sense of humor, but they, they make me laugh so much. It says, and Haman told his wife, Zareth, and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zareth, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, Haman goes home and talks to the same wife, same friends. But this time, they changed their tune a little bit, didn't they? And this time... This time, they're not his wife and his friends only, but he calls the friends wise men. Like, where were you wise men before? When you were just feeding into his ego. This time, they changed their tune. They tell him, the king honored Mordecai, the Jew. And you, my friend, built a gallows to kill the guy the king just honored. Oh, you're a dead man. More than that, you want all the people of Mordecai slaughtered. And you convince the king to slaughter the people of the man that he just honored with the highest honor in the kingdom. You're not going to win this one. And the implication here is when they say, before you've begun to fall, this man whom before you've begun to fall 
if he's of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Implication is that the God of the Jews won't allow you to overcome this man. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how many awards and uh, positions that you have, if, if he's of the Jewish people, you will fall before him. And the next chapter of the story just gets worse for Haman. When he goes to Esther's second banquet, you know, in spite of having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, Haman's plans were turned against him all because the king couldn't sleep and the reader of his chronicles just happened to be reading in the right place. And Mordecai's reward, way back when we talked about it, was forgotten. And we talked about the fact that, you know, Mordecai might have, we're not told in the text, so it's just me thinking, but Mordecai might have thought, that's not fair. It's not fair. How, how come I don't get rewarded for what I did? How come this Agagite gets brought up into the, the highest echelons and I'm the one who saves king's life? Now we know why. If he would have got rewarded back then, you know what would have happened? Did we reward Mordecai for, yeah, we did. Okay, next page. It has all come to pass just exactly as God has ordained it in order to save his people and to keep his covenant word. Haman's plans were overturned because the king couldn't sleep and the chronicles were read. Esther is the instrument that God is going to use. He, she is. And she has taken that role now and she stands courageous and she's going to continue to be courageous and she's going to be active. She's going to be planning these things. I mean, she's going to be front and center in all of these things working as God is moving through all this. But the work of keeping God's promises is God's alone. And I think, and I can't prove any of this, so this is just me thinking. I think if Esther walked into the court, kissed the scepter, Esther, what can I do for you up to half the kingdom? I'm a Jewish person, and I want you to save my Jewish people. I don't think the king would have been receptive. I don't know that. We can't know that because it didn't happen. But all these guards around, all these court officials around, Haman right there in his ear, no, I don't think he would have been receptive. If, if she said, let me have a banquet, let me wine and dine you, and now I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to tell you what, Haman's sitting right there with him. I don't know that, I mean, we can't know, but I don't know that he'd be receptive. But God grabbed a hold of the king's heart that night, and he put Mordecai on his mind, and now Mordecai the Jew is on the king's heart as a man who is loyal, a man who is faithful, a man who saved my life and was forgotten for it. And he wants to remove that. So he gives Mordecai perhaps the greatest honor you could possibly imagine, wearing his robe, wearing his crown, riding around on a horse. And so he, God is working through every step through this book to bring exact, the exact outcome that he desires at the exact moment that he desires. If the king couldn't sleep and had the chronicles the night before, it wouldn't have been, wouldn't happen. If the king had the, couldn't sleep and had the chronicles read the night after, it'd be too late. It was exactly at the right moment. Our problem is that we want a roadmap before we'll trust God's hand before we'll trust in his providence and his working all things. 
We want to see where the twists and turns are before we lay down our fear and our doubt and, and just believe God is in control. Ultimately, as Evan talked to you last time about justice, ultimately the wicked never escape justice. They may escape it in our sight in this life for a couple years or even for a lifetime, but ultimately the wicked never escape justice. And no matter what opposition comes against God's people, um, we can still trust in God's hand. Because as has been proven in this story, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So our God is in control, and he is above all other powers. Any questions, comments, cries of outrage? That's it? Sweet. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your hand and your mercy. God, we thank you for all that you are and all that you have done. God, we pray that you would watch over us as we are just desperately trying to live faithfully and to be faithful. God, and that you would keep your hand upon us, that you'd be with those that are hurting, that you would uh, heal hearts, that you would heal sicknesses, all the people we prayed for at the beginning, God, that you'd bring healing to them wherever they may be, in hospitals or in, in their homes. God, we ask that you would um, just teach us, to, teach us to trust, teach us to have faith, teach us to grow in that trust in you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.